The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. In Secret Church 5, David Platt explores Scripture's teaching on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. After looking at the mystery behind the Spirit's identity, as well as the way the Spirit has been viewed historically by the Church, this study focuses on the person and work of the Spirit. Finally, a number of significant issues related to the Spirit are addressed. Blasphemy against the Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, filling with the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit. For The Secret Church 5, study guide, and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC5. And this is Secret Church 5, Episode 6. A less important question. Were Old Testament believers regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Old Testament saints, were they regenerated? Now this is where uh, you got some different opinions, different theological opinions, even in the context of evangelical Christianity. There's, real, there's no word for regeneration. You've got pictures like you, you see in Ezekiel 36, but there's no word for regeneration in the Old Testament. Here's, here's how I would understand the answer to that question. First, our commonality with Old Testament believers. I think we, along with Old Testament believers, are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone from the Spirit alone. Okay? That's commonality. Now, where do things differ some? Our differences with Old Testament believers. We're saved by grace alone. Really no differences there. We're all saved by grace, period. No difference there. Through faith alone. Now, this is where things get a little bit different. It's both through faith. But listen to Romans 4. This is talking about Abraham and his faith being credited as righteousness. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness, because he believed God. And this is why it says right after that the words credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us. And it ties this to us. We're both saved through faith. But in the Old Testament, it's a faith looking forward to Christ. It's that anticipation. It's looking forward to Christ. For us, difference is it's faith looking backward. Now, I want to I be very careful. I, I hesitate to put it this way because I don't want to give the idea that we live our Christian lives today looking in the rearview mirror. We, we look back 2,000 years ago to the gospel story of Jesus on a cross. That's what we look back to. But the reality is we live by faith in the Son of God today. Crucified with Christ, I no longer live. Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. In the life I live, by f- live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the picture. It's a present. It's a confidence and present grace and it's present faith. But we're looking backward to what the Old Testament believers were looking forward to. So... Grace alone through faith alone. There's faith looking forward. Ours faith looking backward in that way. In Christ alone. And yes, Christ. Hebrews 11, 24, 26, really. By faith, Moses, get in the middle there. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. In the Old Testament, it's an anticipated Messiah. Not a full understanding of everything that was coming. It's an anticipated Messiah. New Testament, our faith is in an ascended Messiah. It's a different perspective here. Different perspective. Looking backward forward, anticipating the Messiah, we look to an ascended Messiah, and then from the Spirit alone, 
Both. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In the Old Testament, you do have an experience of the spirit, but it's incomplete. We've talked about that. In the New Testament, there's an indwelling experience of the spirit. An indwelling experience. I think the scripture is clear that the Old Testament believers did not have the same kind of experience with the spirit that you and I have. It's a new covenant experience of the spirit that we enjoy. That doesn't mean the Spirit was not at work or the Spirit was not, I think the picture we've got in Scripture is the Spirit opening eyes, changing hearts, transforming lives in the Old Testament by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what the Spirit's doing. And so there is, in that sense, regeneration going on, but it's not on the same level when it comes to the experience of the Spirit, when it comes to the perspective on Christ that we have. Because we're looking backward to an ascended, and, and looking now to an ascended Messiah, and we have a complete indwelling of the Spirit. They were looking forward to an anticipated Messiah um, and had an incomplete experience of the Spirit. So those were the different, those would be the differences. No question, Old Testament believers were believers. They were just that. And they were saved by faith alone, grace alone through faith alone, and Christ alone from the Spirit alone. But there were some differences in how that looks. That's how I would answer that question. Moving on. Spirit regenerates. Second, the Spirit indwells. Follows right on the heels of this. The Holy Spirit unites our lives with Christ through his presence in us. Spirit indwells in us. This is Romans 6. If we've been united with Jesus like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body of sin might be done away with. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We died with Christ, we live with Christ. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, we're dead to sin but alive to God because we're united with Christ. This is what John Calvin is talking about here. He says, we must examine this question. How do we receive these benefits which the Father bestowed on his Son? Not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. And the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. It's a great phrase there at the end. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ unites, Christ effectually unites us to himself. Through the Spirit, our body becomes his home. You yourselves are God's temple. God's Spirit lives in you. Our body becomes his home. His resources become our riches. He dwells in us. He dwells in us, and he gives us all that he has. I never really understood Luke chapter 11, verse 11 through 13, until I was studying it. I guess it was last summer when we were walking through a series in Luke chapter 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks, this is Jesus speaking, for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now in Matthew's version, Matthew chapter 6, it says, how much more will your Father in heaven give whatever to those who ask him? It doesn't mention specifically the Holy Spirit. And I've wondered, why? What if I wasn't asking for the Holy Spirit when I was praying? What if I was praying for this situation in my life or that situation in my life or this going on or this need in my life? Why does he say he'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I used to think, well, that's nice, but that's not all I pray for. And then I began to realize when he gives us the Holy Spirit, what he is giving us, who he's giving us. 
We go to him and we're asking for comfort in a certain situation. He says, I'm not going to give you comfort. I'm going to give you the comforter. We ask for help. He doesn't give us help. He gives us the helper. We ask for guidance. He doesn't give us a map or instructions. He gives us the guide. We ask for wisdom. He gives us the spirit of wisdom. We ask for truth. He gives us the truth teacher. We ask for love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness, faithfulness. And he gives us the one who bears all of that fruit in us. This is the beauty, unbelievable, indescribable generosity of God in prayer. We ask for gifts. He gives us the giver. We ask for the supply, and he gives us the source. We ask for money, and he gives us the bank. Isn't that great? That'll motivate your praying. You don't go and you ask for $20. You go and say, can I have like, everything? Does that seem bold? You know, God, I know you got a universe to run here, and I, I just need some comfort in what's going on in my life right down here. So if you could just like send your whole presence to live in me, um, that, that would be great. That's, just, that's what he's promising here. The Spirit indwells us. We have the resources of heaven living in us. What an incredible promise. The Spirit regenerates and dwells. The Spirit sanctifies. The Spirit, this is what I mean by sanctifies. The Spirit transforms our lives into the image of Christ so that we come to mirror the standing we already have in God's sight. Sanctification is driven by the Trinity. The Father planned for us to be holy, Ephesians 1.4, shows us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. The Son died for us to be holy. He gave Himself up for us to make us holy, to present us to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Father planned for us to be holy. The Son died for us to, holy, to be holy. And the Spirit works for us to be holy. Sanctification, centered on Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.17 is huge. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. We are being, this is sanctification, we are being transformed into his likeness, into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The picture here is the Spirit, and we've talked about this, this is where his humility comes in. The Spirit fixes our hearts on the glory of Christ. And the more we behold the glory of Christ, day in and day out, in his word, in prayer, as we walk in the Spirit, we behold the glory of Christ. And the more we behold him, we become like him. This is exactly what we see as, as parents. When, when, I, when I look at my two precious boys and I see their facial expressions and I see their mom's facial expressions in them, when I see their mannerisms and I see mannerisms that reflect their mom, when I, when I hear them talk, to hear, I mean, this is always the humbling thing, isn't it, as a parent, to hear your children using your words that apparently they learned from you. Um, not that we've taught them any, like, bad words or anything, but... Ah, uh, anyway, yeah. But the picture is, the more they behold us, the more they become like us. The more we behold the glory of Christ, the more we're becoming like the glory of Christ. This is what the Spirit is done, doing and sanctifying. As we behold the glory of Christ, we're cleansed of past sin. You're washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Remember, Spirit's convicting us, convicting us of sin and revealing righteousness to us. As we behold the glory of Christ, we are purified of present sin. The very middle there of 1 Peter 1, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And as we behold the glory of Christ, we are empowered over future sin because he's giving us power, the power of Christ to defeat sin. We are not a defeated people when it comes to our battles with sin. 
We were victorious people. We do not fight to earn a position of victory. We fight from a position of victory in the Spirit. That's huge. He changes our desires. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. That heart change that He began in regeneration needs to continue more and more and more and more and more so that we don't want what the world says we, we need or what would satisfy us. We want what Christ says. And the Spirit is changing our desires and developing our discipline. This is why we pray and we study the Word and we fast and we practice spiritual disciplines. We do this because they're means of grace. They're means by which the Spirit of God changes our hearts and changes our desires. We are to, to which we come in to a life that is being led by the Spirit, not under law, Galatians 5.16. We're careful in our spiritual distances. We must be careful not to make these just more things we're doing to try to earn our way to God. But these are the means by which we're experiencing the grace of God on a daily basis. The Spirit sanctifies us. Next, the Spirit comforts. What it means for the Spirit to comfort us, it means He comes alongside us. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor or comforter to be with you forever. The word here, it's used I think five different times in the New Testament uh, to refer to the Spirit, is paraclete. And that word literally means one who is called alongside. And what's, what's really interesting is you start looking at this word in different translations and there's just a myriad of translations. Counselor, helper, advocate, comforter, strengthener, supporter, advisor, ally, champion. This is a great word. It gives a picture, and don't miss it, give you another comforter. Jesus is talking about, basically what he's saying to his disciples there in John 14 is, I've been with you, and I've cared for you. I've been your helper, your comforter, your counselor, your strengthener, your supporter. I've been that. I'm going to send another one to you. Someone who brings the same comfort and strength, advocacy, support, all of these things. There's a picture here, another. Jesus, and it kind of leads to this next, next uh, bullet there. The Spirit is our sacred advocate. Our sacred advocate. A paraclete in the first century was someone who would give assistance to you in a court of law. Uh, a legal advisor who would speak on your behalf. That's what an advocate would do. 1 John 2 talks about Jesus as the one who is our advocate, who speaks to the Father in our defense. And what... Jesus is saying is there's one coming, the Spirit, who will be your advocate like that. The Spirit is our sacred advocate, and the Spirit is our strong comforter. That word comfort, just very simply, comfort. Two pieces together, though. Fortis, this picture of strength. C-O-M, this calm, this with, with strength. One who comes alongside you with strength, our strong comforter. He gives strength in the heat of battle. This is what I love about John 16, verse 7. It is good for you that I'm going away. His disciples were wrestling with this, struggling with this, and he says, it's good for you. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. And he encourages them at the end of that chapter, I've told you these things so, they may be, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When we walk through trouble, when we go through difficult times, it's the Spirit of God who is our comforter. I know that across this room there are people tonight who are walking through things in your family, things in your life, some, some things that probably nobody else in here knows about. And I want you to know that the Spirit of God knows about these things. And He is your strong comforter. He is with you, His strength with you in the heat of the battle. And not only in the heat of the battle, but He gives solace in the heart of our pain. Strength in the heat of the battle and solace in the heart of our pain. The Spirit comforts. Next, the Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit takes all that belongs to Christ and makes it known to us. 
This is the picture, and I've mentioned this actually at the very beginning, did, when we were looking at Exodus 33, John 16, 12 through 15, when he, the very end of that passage. The Spirit will take from what is my, not mine and make it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Here's the reality. We need the Spirit to know God. Anything we know about God comes from who? The Spirit. There's nothing we know about God that doesn't come from the Spirit. That's based on 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12, because God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit of God knows all the things of God, and He reveals the things of God to us by His Spirit. We need the Spirit to know God, but not only to know God, we need the Spirit to know ourselves. He testifies to us about who we are. This is the passage in Romans 8, 15 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. He testifies to us. He convinces us. He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness. He reminds us. Spirit has a reminding function to remind us who we are in Christ, remind us what we have in Christ. We'll teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. The Spirit, we need him to know God and we need the Spirit to know ourselves. The Spirit teaches the Word to us. Here's the reality. Without the Spirit, we are dead. Without the Spirit, we're dead. But don't miss it. The Spirit and the Word go together because He is a teacher. Without the Spirit, we're dead. Without the Word, we're deluded. We're deluded. And this is where we've got to be careful, especially when we talk about some of the things we're going to talk about later on. Because if we disregard the word and jump into the pool of experience with the spirit that we all attribute everything to the spirit but we leave the word behind we will be led into delusions that are not what scripture is intended without the spirit we're dead without the word we're deluded how does the spirit teach us the word now this is where remember what picture of uh, I think it was Ezekiel yeah it was Ezekiel that we looked at in the Old Testament prophet revelation inspiration the prophet receives the word the prophet relays the word how does the spirit teach us the word well first of all you got revelation which is what we've already seen. This is one instance, Revelation 1, 2 through 11. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. This is John talking. And the Spirit told me, write on a scroll, a scroll what you see. Revelation. So the Spirit reveals the Word to John here. And then inspiration, next step, Revelation, inspiration. And those who are writing Scripture relay the Word to us. All Scriptures God breathed. 2 Peter 1.21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Which this is just an incredible picture. I wish we had time to camp out on so many of these different things. But here to see the Spirit of God coming upon men who wrote this book. And, and through their lives, through their minds, through their hearts, in their style, with their pens giving us word that is completely authoritative, that is completely from a divine author, but written through human authors. The miracle of inspiration that's going on here is, is really just unfathomable. It's just exciting to see how different authors, especially in the New Testament, for example, they write different ways. They do things differently, but it's truth. It's all coming from one divine author through a variety of different human authors in this process called inspiration. Next is illumination. This is where we come in. Words revealed, inspired, and then we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to understand what's written here. Open my eyes that I may say wonderful things in your law. Ephesians 1, 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. 1 John 2, you have an anointing to know the truth. Here's the picture, and we've got to realize this. A Christian reads this book 
radically differently than a non-Christian. Those who have the Spirit of Christ in them read this book radically differently than those who do not have the Spirit of Christ in them. This is not just a book we sit down and read like any novel or any other book. There's a process going on here where God, by His Spirit, has revealed His Word. It's been inspired, and He is now opening our eyes to understand it through this process of illumination, which leads to proclamation where we take this Word and we proclaim it, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. So what do we do practically? Here's my encouragement. Number one, read Revelation. Not, not the book, last book in the New Testament, but read this revelation. This is the Word of God. Read it. Then study inspiration. Here's what I mean by that. As you read it, think through. Who's writing this? What was the situation when they were writing it? How was the Spirit inspiring this Word? Who's, what, what is the purpose of this book? What is the purpose of this verse? What is it trying to, what was the Spirit doing in the first century when Paul's writing this letter? Ask those kind of questions. The whole how to study the Bible that we looked at in Secret Church a couple times ago. Read Revelation, study inspiration. Then third, pray for illumination. Read Scripture like you're dependent on the Spirit. Let's be a people who avoid just sitting down, opening up the book, and just, just starting to read. Let's really think through, I need the Spirit of God to help me understand anything in this book. Let's be dependent and desperate for the Spirit in the way we read, and then practice proclamation. Once you read it, reproduce it. Proclaim it wherever you go. Read Revelation, study inspiration, pray for illumination, practice pro- proclamation. Next, the Spirit guides The Spirit guides us. We're flying through these 12. The Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit leads God's people to accomplish God's will. Led by the Spirit of God, Romans 8 talks about. Galatians 5 talks about. The Spirit of God guides individuals. You look at this in the New Testament. Acts 8, the Spirit tells Philip to go to the chariot and stay near him. At some points, the Spirit even transports people. And they come up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. That would be pretty cool. Um, and he did this in the Old Testament. Elijah, Elisha, same kind of thing. You get to Acts 16, you read that passage. It almost looks like when you look at Paul in Acts 16, 6, and 7, it's like a pinball machine. Paul starts to go one way, and the Spirit says, no, not there. And he starts to go, no, not there. And he just kind of, but the Spirit is leading him. It's guiding him. You get to Acts 20, 22, and 23. This is really interesting. Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. The reality is the Spirit in Acts chapter 20 is leading Paul to a place where he will be imprisoned. Does that come for you? You want to follow the Spirit? Our brothers and sisters around the world are following the Spirit. And it's costing them their lives. We cannot sit back here and say, well, the Spirit will never lead me to a place where I'm uncomfortable. Or the Spirit will never lead me to a place that would be dangerous. If we're going to follow the Spirit, we may be going to the most dangerous places and the most uncomfortable places. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.